Some years ago, I was in New Orleans. It's a couple of years after Hurricane Katrina and the levees had busted, flooded the city. I was with a group of college students. And we had spent some time in the Ninth Ward and seeing all of the destruction that had happened there. And as we were walking back to the church with whom we were partnering for that week to do service in the community and so on and so forth, one of the girls on the trip looked around and she asked a question that I think many of us either have asked or would ask in the same situation. And that was, how could God allow such a thing to happen? I doubt there's very many of us in this room where when we look either at difficult situations that have come about in our own life or when we consider the world outside of us, the world in which we live, we go, how could God? Where is God? And in one sense, that is a legitimate question, but we need not ask that question as if there is no answer. Because if we, want, if we take the Bible seriously and we go from cover to cover, then I think what we end up finding is that there is a more staggering and a more relevant question. And it's not why does God allow evil, but why does God allow good at all? The Bible says the wages of sin are death, is death. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of it, dying, you will die. You will die two deaths. You'll die physically, you'll pass from immortality to mortality, and you will die spiritually. You'll be cut off from me, the source of your life. You will be in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. The wages of sin is death. And yet here we are. We have another day and another breath. Many of you woke up this morning and you enjoyed a warm shower and a warm meal and you dressed in clean clothes and we're here gathering with people who know us and love us and whom we know and whom we love. He has given us yet another day. The more staggering question of the Bible is not why is there evil? I think our doctrine of sin and of humanity gives a sufficient explanation for that. The more staggering question is what has prevented evil, and sin from carrying out its full effect in creation? What is restraining sin? The answer is the grace and the patience of God. And yet at the same time, it also gives us a second answer because we ought to ask, okay, if it's, if it's the grace of God and the patience of God, what is God waiting for? He's waiting for that day when he puts all things right. Every injustice will be met with his perfect justice, and yet he's waiting. Is it because he's apathetic? Is it because he's fallen asleep, as the prophets of Baal found out with their own idols? Perhaps he's using the restroom. That was what was accused of their own God. No, he is patient so that, according to Romans chapter 2, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, many might come to repentance. He is slow. One day is like a thousand days, and that through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, we would be able, with the very breaths by which we have disbelieved in him and 
disobeyed him and dishonored him might confess Jesus Christ as Lord and that we might be saved in that day. Isaiah is concerned with that king. And chapters 13 and 14 isn't going to give us all of the answers that we need to ask those really big questions. The whole Bible is sufficient for that. But it's going to give us some hints. Up to this point in the previous section, ending at chapter 12, Isaiah is developing a portrait of the one who is yet to come. It's kind of like a screen printing that in Isaiah 2 and 4 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 11 and all of these chapters, you see one layer being added on top of another layer and, and a more accurate and a more robust picture is beginning to emerge of who this one is, this Messiah. We see in chapter 7 that he will be born of a virgin. In the very next chapter, chapter 8, he's going to possess a promised land and he is going to rule over it in justice. And then we see in chapter 9 that he will be a child overlooked and underestimated and yet he will possess a regiment of titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And this one will be the one who will bring about a brand new, entirely transformed, new creation. Chapter 11, he will be filled by the Spirit of the Lord, and he will rule in the fear of the Lord. Who is this king? This is the portrait that Isaiah has been painting all the way up to this point. Well, beginning in chapter 13, going to the end of this next major section, ending in chapter 35, this one that Isaiah has been talking about, this king, this new and better David, stakes his royal claim not only on the church, but on the whole world, on all of the nations. It's as, if the old, it's as the old Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper famously quipped, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is sovereign over everything. And the world, as we'll find in these chapters and the chapters to follow, will either find its safety and its fulfillment by attaching themselves to this king, this new and greater David yet to come, or they will be destroyed in their rebellion. This is the idea that begins to unfold in chapters 13 and 14. And from these 54 verses, which we're going to move through rather quickly, one big idea emerges, and it's this. The, king, the Lord is king above everything. We escape his wrath and enjoy his compassion when we trust in him alone for salvation. The Lord is king above everything. We escape his wrath and enjoy his compassion when we trust in him alone for salvation. And what we're going to see is this big idea working itself out in four main points. We're going to see, first of all, that the Lord is king above all earthly purposes. 
The Lord is king above all earthly purposes. And then we're going to see, secondly, that the Lord is above all earthly powers. He is the king above all earthly powers. And we're going to see, thirdly, that the Lord is king above all earthly promises. He's king above all earthly promises. And then we'll see, fourthly and finally, that the Lord is king above all earthly pretensions. Above all earthly pretensions. Let's consider that first point, that the Lord is king above all earthly purposes. Beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, we see here it's an oracle which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw. And he saw this oracle, specifically it was concerning the nation of Babylon. Here in chapters 13 and 14, Isaiah is reflecting on a handful of things. He's reflecting, first of all, on what's happening to Israel in his own lifetime concerning the national power, Assyria. Secondly, he's considering what will happen in the near future concerning Babylon. Thirdly and finally, he's going to consider what will happen in the far-off future at the end of history. That's what we find here. What's happening right now in this geopolitical skirmish that's going on in the Fertile Crescent? What is it that we should think about Babylon, that, that kingdom that has not yet risen to power that we might underestimate and overlook? And what does all this have to do with what God will do at the end of history? That is what these two chapters are speaking to. Because in all of this, Isaiah's burden, that's what oracle means in Hebrew. It can be translated burden. He's got a burden to preach a hard message to people who likely will not want to hear. His burden is to speak to us about the coming day of the Lord, which we'll consider in just a minute. He's going to give us a glimpse of that last day in human history by speaking various oracles about God's judgments in his own day, Beginning here with Babylon and Assyria and Philistia, he's going to do it again with Moab and Damascus and Egypt in the chapters to come. And each one of these functions kind of like a movie trailer. So many of you, if you're a Star Wars fanatic, as I know many of you are, as soon as that first trailer came onto the interwebs, you watch that trailer 579,000 times and you dissect it every little bit. You go, what's this movie going to be about? What's going to happen to the main characters? What's going to happen to Ray? And what's going to happen to, to Kylo Ren? And are they going to be good guys or bad guys? And you're, you're working it all out. And the idea is in that trailer, as with every trailer, is it's giving us glimpses of the feature attraction. And that's exactly what God's judgments on Babylon and these other nations are doing as we consider what God will finally and fully do in the main attraction at the end of history when he comes again. And so chapters 13 and 14 are trailer number one. And it concerns the nation of Babylon. Let me just recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. Babylon is not a world power yet. Isaiah is predicting what will happen to talk about Babylon as being a world power, as I said, is like us talking about Mexico being a world power. That's not to say it's not a legitimate nation. That's not to say it's not a player in this geopolitical landscape. It's just to say, if we were to say Mexico is the most powerful nation in the world, we go, really? It's kind of how it was in Isaiah's day. 
Isaiah is predicting what will happen. And his oracle reveals that Babylon will become a great empire. And so this oracle, even though it seems somewhat unbelievable in Isaiah's day, well, it would end up serving God's people really well after Isaiah is dead and gone. Because a little more than 100 years after Isaiah's death, God's people Israel and Judah are going to be scattered in Babylon. Babylon will rise in power. They will conquer Judah and Jerusalem. They will deport all of, all of Judah into Babylon right there at the beginning of 6th century B.C. And those people, as they're away from their land and away from the temple and away, or away from the tabernacle and away from all of these things, they would hear Isaiah's oracles. They would read Isaiah and they would say, Isaiah was 100% right about the Assyrians. And would you look at that? He was 100% right about the Babylonians. Isaiah's word must be God's word. All of this has indeed been ordered by God. He is truly the king of kings, and he is the Lord over lords, including the king of Babylon. They would no doubt say with Isaiah, if you glimpse in chapter 14, verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God's word has come true. For verse 27, the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? Answer, nobody. His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Softball question, nobody. The Lord accomplishes all that he purposes. What does this mean for you and for me? Living now centuries Millennia after Isaiah wrote these things, it means that we can stake our lives on the Word of God. It means that it will not return empty, even if it appears to be returning empty in our own day and in our own perception. It will not return void. It falls like the rain that we've seen outside and we drove to church in this morning. And it accomplishes everything that God sets it out to accomplish. We can stake our lives on the word of God and we can stake our lives on the purpose of God. It cannot be frustrated. It will not be thwarted. He will not be derailed. He will not look up one day, be a hundred miles away from where he hoped to be and go, oh, I wonder why I took the wrong turn. Everything is happening just as God has sovereignly ordered it, all for his good purposes and ultimately for his glory. So the Lord is first of all king above all earthly purposes. But he's also, secondly, king above all earthly powers. That's what we see in the remainder of chapter 13. It's clear, beginning in verse 2 and following, that Isaiah is talking about the rise and the fall of Babylon. He's summoning, commanding the Medes, we see them mentioned in verse 17, to come against them and to conquer them. That they are going to be the weapons of his indignation. We see all of this theme happening in verse 2 all the way to verse 8. But beyond that, Isaiah is doing something else. He's not just talking about the rise and the fall of Babylon. He's talking about the rise and the fall of the entire world system. Look at verse 11. 
He expands the scope of his oracle beyond Babylon to include the whole world. And not just the whole world, but the entire cosmos. Look at verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place. What is Isaiah talking about in these verses? If he's not talking about Babylon, answer, he's talking about the future. He's talking about verse 6, the day of the Lord which is near. Verse 9, the day of the Lord that is coming. He is talking about that last day in human history. He's also talking about Babylon. And this is what he's saying. That when you see what happens to Babylon, you're seeing a trailer for what will happen in the last day. It is a foretaste of that day when the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, brings everything to nothing. And Isaiah's reason for using Babylon lies in the very purpose of the name and the place of Babylon itself. In the beginning of the Bible, you may remember, we talked about it last week briefly, we're introduced to a place in Shinar called Babel. And it represents the first organized attempt by human beings to have a society and a community with no reference to God whatsoever. It is the first secular society. And so no matter what the heavens bring, they would build a kind of society that would survive. They would be stronger than God. And that was precisely the goal of the Babylonians in Isaiah's day. The entire empire would be built on this ethos. And oh, by the way, it was true of Assyria, it was true of Moab, it was true of Damascus, and it was true of Egypt, all the other nations that Isaiah is going to address in the next 10 or 11 chapters. So when we get to the end of the Bible, so Babel at the beginning, what we find at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation is John takes what is written about Babylon here in chapter 13, And he takes language about the city of Tyre, the kingdom of Tyre, later on in chapter 22, and he blends them together. And this becomes the code name that John will give to the whole world system that is in rebellion against God and his law, that is Babylon the Great. Babylon the harlot. Babylon, which is the machinery of the world system and of all of its various cultures, which are deliberately opposed to God and the one true king, his Messiah, who he has sent. So when Isaiah is speaking about the day of the Lord, he is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with layers of meaning. He is saying on the one hand, yes, Babylon, the day of the Lord, in a trailer sense, is going to come against Babylon, but that is just a glimpse of a bigger and a more terrifying day to come. He's saying that the whole world system will be brought to nothing, just like the nations of Babylon and Assyria and Philistia will be brought to nothing. And it's against that background that we're to understand what Isaiah means in verse 6 when he speaks of the day of the Lord in these terms as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. And how the day of the Lord in verse 9 can be described as cruel with wrath and with fierce anger. That the ultimate holy war is not conducted by a medieval church against heretics. The church was wrong for that. But it is ultimately conducted by God against his enemies. 
Retaliation and vengeance is forbidden to Christians. We're told to turn the other cheek, but not God. That is why our cry in Romans chapter 12 quotes it, vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is mine, says the Lord. So vengeance looks really bad on humans, but it looks really good on God because he is holy. That is his business. And he will bring his business against Babylon to a decisive and a terrifying conclusion. And in that day, the whole world will be exposed to the unmitigated and the merciless wrath of God. I want you to follow Isaiah here because this is not a sermonette for Christianettes, as A.W. Tozer once said. That in that day, verse 7, all hands, you see that there, will fall limp in defeat. Every human heart will melt. They will be like closed mouth zombies before the living God. And once verse 7 happens, well, then we see in verse 8 that they will be dismayed and they will be terrified. The most powerful nations in the civilized world, it says here, are going to double over in pain like a woman in the midst of a powerful contraction. And as we see at the end of verse 8, everyone will look into one another's faces. And they're not going to see strength and they're not going to gain comfort, but rather it's going to be so traumatic that the grief and the terror will only be compounded. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He goes on to comment in verse 9 that the destruction and the desolation in verse 9 will be so devastating that it can only be measured in verses 10 through 13 as a cosmic catastrophe. Follow along with me, verse 10. That the Lord's vengeance against his enemies in that day will be so intense, it will be so powerful that the stars and the sun and the moon, verse 10, will completely burn out. You say, well, Isaiah is just exaggerating. It's poetic language. Is that so? Jesus quoted Isaiah 13, 10 when he gave his Olivet Discourse on the day of the Lord that is yet to come. He goes, let me tell you, what has always been said about what will happen when I come again. The sun and the moon and the stars are going to blink out. That will be how terrifying that is. You can read more about that in Luke 21. Well, not only will the sky go dark in that day, as we see in verse 10, but look at verse 13. We also see that the heavens are going to be made to tremble and the earth will be knocked off of its axis. Then in verses 14 to 22, all the rest of the chapter, you just scan through that and you see all of the horrors of warfare. Isaiah prophesies about the utter mercilessness of the Medes toward Babylon. But all of this, every bit of it, is just a trailer for the utter mercilessness of God's judgment against the world, against Babylon the Great on that last day of history. It's just a trailer. He goes, I want you to think about the worst imaginable things that you've seen when enemies come against one another, and that pales in comparison to the utter terror that will come when God comes against his enemies in the last day. It's just a trailer. It's not the main feature. I want you to think for a moment about those three expressions in verse 9. Cruel. With wrath and fierce anger. Are those the words that you would use of God? Those are the kind of words when used of God that we try to protect God from. 
But this is how Isaiah, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, describes our Lord on his day. Why do we struggle so much with this idea? That when we glimpse at verse 9, why is there something in us that stops for a moment and goes, surely that can't be right? Is it? Why does it make our stomach a little uneasy? Why are some of you right now thinking, surely this can't be what Isaiah means? That's not what my God is like. Beloved, we struggle with this idea because we have a terribly low view of the majesty of God. And because we have such a terribly low view of the majesty of God, even on our best days, we have a terribly low view of our sin and of what our sin deserves. But this should also lead us for a moment to not just consider God in all of the holy terror of his righteous indignation against sin and rebellion against him, but it should lead us to consider the patience of God. Samuel Bolton, the old Puritan, wrote this, If but any tender-hearted man should sit one hour in the throne of the Almighty and look down upon the earth as God does continually and see what abominations are done in that one hour, he would undoubtedly in the next set the world on fire. And yet God has not. Why? God sees far more than we see. Think about the way that you respond when all of a sudden evil and wickedness is exposed. It might be with a trafficking ring being exposed. It might be with videos in Planned Parenthood clinics revealing what really happens. And there's an indignation and a righteous anger and a wrath. And that is one one thousandth of an a thousandth of an infinity of what God sees every minute of every second of every day where he sees not only outward wickedness that we can all see, but he sees all of the hidden wickedness that we cannot yet see. And not only that, he sees all of the wickedness that has yet to give birth to deeds in the very motivations of every human heart on every continent in this world and in every age that has ever been. And yet, he is patient. Why? Why is he so patient? Why doesn't he just burn it up? The apostle Peter knows. And he gives us the answer. Put your finger here in Isaiah 13 and go to your right to 2 Peter chapter 3. When we consider trailers have been given, the main attraction has not yet come. We ask, well, what is God doing? He's being patient. For what purpose? We're going to see here, 2 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. We've, we don't, God is not bound by time in any way. He, he is not dependent upon it. He sees all things in light of his eternality. And he says a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not a procrastinator. 
He's not apathetic. He's not waiting to the last minute as if he had other better things to do. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's the you he's talking about? Look up at verse 8, the beloved. He's patient to us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The first reason that God is patient is personal repentance. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that we should not think lightly, that just because God has not yet judged us does not mean that God will not judge. He will. But in the meantime, he's being kind. That's the word that Paul uses. And his kindness is meant to produce something. It's his kindness produces repentance. Sinners deserving of judgment, having yet another day and another breath where they might confess with their mouth, Christ Jesus is Lord, and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Have you ever stopped to think that every breath is a gift of God, that we might give him glory prior to that day and so prove to be his? Friend, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you are not owed the very breath that you were given this morning. And yet in God's providence, he's given you not only another breath, but he has brought you to this place on this day so that you would know that his judgment will come like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to come. And yet he has given you yet another day and another breath whereby you might, by God's grace, turn from your sin and entrusting in yourself and that you would put all of your belief upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Don't wait one more day. God has been so patient. He has been kind. But don't think that because judgment has not come that he will not judge. Don't wait another day. Trust in Christ. But we see something else here. We see that it's not just repentance, but verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and of godliness? That the patience of God and not yet returning to judge is meant First of all, to motivate repentance, but second of all, it motivates our practical holiness. So that in that day of the Lord, which will come unexpectedly like a thief in the knife, or in the night, the fruit of our lives will give witness to Christ in us. That we will not be like those branches, John 15, that are bearing no fruit and be cut away and burned. But that we will be those branches that bear much fruit because we abide in Christ. This is at the heart of our discipleship. This is what we talked about just a few weeks ago and why we gather regularly. Because Jesus is coming and every one of us are going to stand before him. And we want to make sure that when we do, though we will not be perfect people, that there is evidence of God's transforming grace bearing fruit in our lives. That we bring the word of God to one another. Walk with one another. That this all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness so that each one of us might be equipped for every good work. What kind of good work? The kind of work that will be exposed in that day. 
Is it a work that is rooted in Jesus? Or is it a work that is rooted in Babylon? Is it in the world? So we need to consider the patience of God. Go back to Isaiah 13. Why is chapter 13 here? Because until we endure the holy terror of chapter 13, and that's a hard chapter, we won't treasure the glorious grace at the beginning of chapter 14. And it's there that we see that the Lord is not only king above all earthly purposes and powers, but that he is also king above all earthly promises. So we see here Babylon, we see the Medes, we see Assyria, and we see Philistia, all powerful influences that have tormented God's people and tempted them time and again into sin and idolatry. These are God's enemies. But where's God's people in all of this? Look at verse 1, chapter 14. But the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set in their own land set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who are their captors and they will rule over those who oppress them. We see there in verse one that God will have compassion on his Israel. That he is not just a God of terrifying wrath. He is a God of unthinkable compassion for sinners. He will have compassion on Israel, whom he has chosen by his grace. The God will forgive them, and he will cleanse a remnant of believing saints of their sins, and he will restore them to himself. And they won't have to worry about their enemies anymore because as we see here, God has set them securely in their own land. Beloved, we need to remember that we were once God's enemies, but Christ died for us. Amen? And when we believed in the name of Jesus, God adopted us into his family. And yet, even though we are in his family, enemies abound. And yet, we are safe in the hands of the king. How safe are we? Is Isaiah painting the picture of those little baby fishes that are swimming close to the mama fish to get away from the bigger fish? Is that what Isaiah is saying? Or perhaps are we like the little monkey clinging tightly to its mother as she swings from branch to branch to get away from some enemy? Is that the picture of God with his people? Now, the picture that is painted here is a picture of a kid who is snatched out of imminent danger, is lifted up, and is taken with almighty power to a place of total safety. Brothers and sisters, today in some parts of the world, the enemies of God come against the people of God and the kingdom of God through physical violence, through imprisonments and beatings, through bombs thrown in churches, through beheadings, by arresting them, by threatening them. But the enemies of God also assault the church through evil ideas and godless ideologies that aim to turn us away from Christ. And all of that's not even to mention our own sins and failures. And yet through all of this, the Israel of God is safe in Christ. John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing. I will lose not one. I will lose nothing of all that he has given to me. But I will raise it up in that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. So what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Or sword? Oh, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, who loves his Israel, who loves his church. We are safe in the almighty, omnipotent, white-knuckled fists of our almighty king. Amen? He will not lose one. He will set us in our own land with brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we will enjoy him forever. So no matter how much pressure you're under, no matter how much you're attacked or how much it may feel at times as if God has abandoned you, remember the Lord will yet have compassion on you. He is king above all earthly promises. But fourthly and finally, the Lord is king above all earthly pretensions. In chapter 14, we have a poem, a word picture of a proud king who's exalted himself. He's got a great reputation. He's Babylon's king, the sin of the king. As we're going to see here is the sin of pride. And we're going to see the root of pride, and we're going to see the rise of pride, and we're going to see the demise of pride. I didn't mean for that to happen, but it sounded pretty good. Verse 12, look at the root of pride. Chapter 14. Oh, how you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You are the day star. You are fallen from heaven. Those around him said, the sun shines out of your face. They said, he is like a God in all of his ways. There's nobody like this day star. He is a heavenly being. But in verses 13 and 14, we see that the king begins to believe his own press. And we see the rise of pride from the root of pride. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I'll set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. This is classical hubris. He believes that he is immune to all of the rules that apply to everybody else. A handful of you here, most of us are young, you may remember when Khrushchev was, was over the USSR and United States and the USSR were in a space race. And when Gagarin went to space, that is their astronaut, 
Khrushchev was the premier of Russia, and he said before Gagarin went into space, quote, we'll go into space, and if there's a God, we'll find him, and we will knock him off his little throne. Which, by the way, is the anthem of communism. Khrushchev is gone. God is still king. This is certainly speaking of an earthly king who actually lived what we see here in Isaiah 14. But the early church fathers saw here an echo of Jesus' teaching about the fall of Satan. And of course, elsewhere in the New Testament, this kind of hubris is in fact attached to Satan himself. It's also true of Adam in whom we find ourselves apart from Christ. Either way, this king grabs for power and the praise that only belongs to God. And so when we get to the New Testament, it is not ironic and it is precisely for this reason that the Bible commands that we do not appoint spiritually immature people to the office of elder and pastor because he will become puffed up and he will fall into the condemnation of the devil. That authority can lead to pride, pride can lead to abuse, and all of that leads to a fall. Sadly, we've seen that once again this week with a well-known pastor over a well-known network of churches who thought the rules didn't apply to him. And it was because of pride. The old Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau once dared to say this, what could be your miseries or what could your miseries have in common with mine? My situation is unique, unheard of since the beginning of time. Equally, the person who can love me as I can love is still to be born. No one has ever had more talent for loving. I was born to be the best friend that ever existed. I would leave this life with apprehension if I knew a better man than me. Show me a better man than me, a heart more loving, more tender, more sensitive. Posterity will honor me because it is my due. I rejoice in myself. My consolation lies in my self-esteem. And if there were a single enlightened government in Europe, it would have erected statues to me. Rousseau's claims seem staggering, don't they? Almost even comical on the surface. But isn't this the same kind of self-esteem and sense of moral superiority and of an exaggerated sense of entitlement that we venerate in our own society today? And isn't it what pops up in our own hearts from time to time? Have you ever resented being overlooked? Have you ever coveted praise that was given to another person? What's so special about them? I'm just as good as them, if not better. Have you ever thought, I can't be happy until my world and all of the people in it are arranged around me in the exact way that I want? Have you ever grown irritable or angry because others, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, didn't pay you the kind of respect that you think you deserve? You know, our pride may be more often revealed not in boastful statements like that of Rousseau, our pride may be more often revealed in that subtle irritability that arises when others don't think as highly of us as we think they should. Or perhaps in the fear and the anxiety that wells up when other people see us as less than perfect. 
We feel exposed and so we shrink back and we hide our shortcomings or we puff up and we justify our shortcomings by measuring ourselves against others like that Pharisee on the Temple Mount. Thank God I'm not like that guy. Once you've started to believe your own press clippings as we see here of the king, you know what you've done? You know what I've done? You've broken the first commandment. You are to have no gods but me. And you just put yourself in my throne. You are guilty. Isaiah's point is that pride is not the bizarre eccentricity of a few megalomaniacs. It is the spirit of the world. So when you get on a social media and you listen to the news and you ask, what's going on with this world? What's wrong with the world? Here's your answer. Our pride is what's wrong with the world. Self-worship is the religion of mankind, even if self-exaltation takes lots of different forms. At the heart of it is self-worship. So here we see the rise of pride, but lastly, we see the demise of pride. His entire life, this king has been adulated and congratulated. People are scared of him and in awe of him while he was alive. People and nations shrunk before his greatness. And such men think that that is their legacy. It's how they're going to be remembered, like Rousseau. But here's their true legacy. Look at verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. Let me talk to you about legacy. Here it is, verse 10. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You're not so great. You have become like us. Those whom you have trampled, those that you tormented, those against whom you have committed countless injustices, you are just like us. Your pomp has brought you down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Verse 16, those who see you will stare at you, and they will ponder over you. Is this the man that made the whole earth tremble? Is this the man that shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a, a desert and overthrew its cities, and who didn't let the prisoners go home? Is this the once great and mighty king? What a laughing stock. He's weak compared to the power of the Almighty. And he's in Sheol, the abode of the dead, the place of punishment, that he's in hell. And to those great men who sought to ascend to heaven and set their throne over God's throne, they will say, you become weak like us, you become just like us. That the pomp and the celebrity has vanished like a morning mist. They go from worship to worms, just like that. And we have a warning against this kind of spirit in the world that exalts itself over the church, the Christian, and the gospel. And we read it earlier in our gathering from Acts chapter 12. You have the example of Herod. He took his robes. This is after imprisoning Peter, persecuting the church, denying and opposing the gospel. He took his robes, he delivers a great oration, and the people are shouting, the voice of God, not that of a man. He must be a God. See also, oh, day star, son of the dawn, you're glorious. 
And then the text says that immediately the Lord struck him down. And he gives the reason. Because he did not give God glory. Every person that has ever been created exists for two purposes. To enjoy God and to glorify him forever. Anything that turns God's glory back to ourselves is self-glory and it is idolatry. And like Herod, we see that he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I often wonder if Luke, as he's writing Acts 12, is thinking about Isaiah 14 and this king. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. This is the end of pride. This is Babylon's fate. And so we should take seriously John's exhortation in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. God exalts the humble, and he will humble the proud. And as Christians, when we are marginalized and misrepresented by the world's media, when we are pressured or persecuted by the world's powerful, when we are ridiculed or parodied by the world's elites, when we are vilified and scandalized by the world's press, our goal is not to take over a presidency. Our goal is to remember this world is passing away. And in the end, it's the destiny of all of those who exalt themselves to the place of God against the church, against the Christian, and against the gospel that they will be destroyed. But God will be good to the church. So if you're here, listen, friend, if you're someone here who is not trusted in Christ alone to escape the day of the Lord and to be declared righteous in that day by him, then I encourage you, as we see at the beginning of Isaiah 14, attach yourself to us. Attach yourself to the King of Israel. Attach yourself to the Messiah, the one who came out of love and of humility to lay down his life for sinners like you. He is the polar opposite of this king. He didn't try to attain deity and glory. He already owned it. And yet this king humbled himself. He did the exact reverse of this man that we see in Isaiah 14. He was not a man aspiring to be God, but he was God stooping low to become a man. And he took on our humanity and even let us kill him in order that we who were nothing and without hope of God in the world, we who humble ourselves before God and believe in his gospel, may be seated with him, the king, in the heavenly places forever. Trust in Christ, or you will not stand in that day. Let's pray.